Welcome to the Extra Environmentalist. Your opposable thumb means nothing. This is what we want to be. We don't want to be Americans or Germans or English. We want to be extra environmentalists. Always feel wherever you go that you are a stranger, the outsider, the one looking in. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. As someone to define an empire, images of ancient Rome and pre-World War Britain spring to mind. But in today's world, the United States is just as much an empire as any other in history. And John Michael Greer's new book, Decline and Fall, The End of Empire and the Future of Democracy in the 21st Century America, Greer starts out by pointing to why the average American citizen doesn't realize he lives in the largest empire on the planet. Just as the empires of old pumped wealth from vassal states, the United States provides unprecedented wealth for itself while draining other countries around the world. The one inevitable thing about empire is that it eventually ends. What can we expect for life in the United States after it declines? And that's what we're going to be talking to John Michael Greer about in the first half of today's episode. John Michael Greer returns. And then in the second half of our show, Chris Martinson returns to our show for the first time since 2011, where we catch up with him about what he's been doing on his website, Peak Prosperity, and also how he thought he was in the information sharing business, but how he's discovered that he's really in the belief challenging business and what that means for approaching these issues from the right brain as opposed to just the left brain perspective. I'm Seth Moserkatz. I'm Justin Ritchie. And this is The Extra Environmentalist. Episode number 81. first thing we need to do is actually start by admitting that America has an empire. Until quite recently, historically speaking, that was not a big deal. Most people were totally cool with that in the not-too-distant past. But ever since the Second World War, when imperialist became a standard title of abuse, America has been really, I think, the first empire in history that has gone around pretending that it's not an empire. The British Empire was totally open about it, the Spanish Empire before that, all these other empires in history, which have followed the same course as ours, have been very straightforward being what they were, but we get all mealy-mouthed in America about the concept of empire. And so the first thing we need to do is grapple with the fact that we have troops stationed in 140 different countries around the world. They are not there for their health. And the fact that they are there has something to do with the fact that the 5% of us who live in the United States get to use 25% of the world's energy resources and 33% of its raw materials and, and industrial product, not because other people don't want these things, but because we have troops in 140 different nations, we uh, tend to engage in attitude adjustment rather enthusiastically when somebody objects to sending over their goods and their raw materials and their energy in exchange for what amount to valueless IOUs that we send back. <clears throat> so let's start with the fact that we have an empire. Again, between the two world wars, it was very straightforward. People were talking about how America ought to have an empire. Successful countries all have empires. We need to get one, too. Let's stop being mealy-mouthed about it. So that's the first step. 
The second step is to talk about what an empire actually is. And there we get into the whole use of the term empire with a capital E and no article to mean whatever the speaker doesn't like. You, you must have seen the various books and so on out there about empire. It's in the abstract. And people fighting empire. No, not any particular empire, you understand, just the, the sort of abstraction. If this reminds you of George W. Bush's war on terror, it should. Again, the idea of going to war against an abstraction, it's not a productive approach. Everyone thinks of empire. When you think of empire, you think of either the Roman Empire or the empire that you think of in Star Wars, like this evil behemoth, right? Yeah, we can't be the evil galactic empire. The other guys have to be the evil galactic empire. We're the good guys. We're the rebels. Except for the last century, we haven't been. We basically took over from the British Empire. And we're the empire now. Now, this, this has some problems. There are ethical issues. There's all this kind of stuff. But the other major problem with empire is that empires fall. It's the most reliable thing about them. They don't last. And when a country gets used to living high on the hog as a result of having an empire, and then it goes away, it's a rough road. It's a really rough road. And that's basically where we are right now. So then how does one become an empire and how does it work when you are the empire? Like, how do you assume the empire role? Well, an empire is basically a wealth pump. It pumps wealth out of a circle of subject nations into the imperial nation. And so the imperial nation gets rich and everyone else goes broke. It is very often forgotten, for example, that before Britain took over India, India was actually the richest country in the world. Literally, it was responsible for some stunningly large fraction of the world's total gross domestic product. By the time the British Empire finally ran aground, India was nearly the poorest country in the world, and Britain, which had been a little backwater, mostly known as a source of codfish, had become the center of the global economy. So that's what empire is. An empire is a wealth pump. It's a way to make one country rich at the expense of other countries. You normally get there by having a lot of soldiers in the right place at the right time, whatever military technology is, is involved. You know, we did not take over from the British Empire because we, like, won a, pub a popularity contest or uh, could sing really well or something like that. The process of taking over from the British Empire was called the First and Second World Wars. There were a variety of nations that wanted to elbow their way into the role, notably Germany. And we pounded the crap out of them and took the role for ourselves. That's how empires happen. Every empire is backed by military force, and that's something else that needs to be remembered. The United States right now spends ballpark as much on its military as the rest of the world put together. And this is not because we are a global policeman, a global force for good. It's because we have an empire, and empires are expensive. You have to have aircraft carriers or whatever the technology of du jour is. You have to have them all over the place. You have to have those bases in 140 countries around the world. You have to have big established military forces ready to engage in attitude adjustment if anybody challenges the flow of wealth inbound. Now, the thing about the United States empire post-1950 is everything from the international monetary system to our thinking about economics and the kinds of economic PhDs that were educated in the United States and went around the world to create the policies of countries from India to Europe and the idea of American business. All of this was oriented around ideas of how the U.S. economy developed and what it created. And so now that the American empire is failing, it's creating a power vacuum, not just from military power, but also economic power and currency power. How do you see the world reorganizing around this power vacuum that's being left by America's decline? Well, the crucial vacuum is actually one step further. It's an intellectual vacuum. 
because and empires attract double talk. That's the case of the American empire and every empire before then. And the intellectual double talk that governs today's economic thinking is a great example. When the U.S. and several European countries sponsored the recent coup d'etat in the Ukraine, for example, the immediate response of the new government was, well, we're going to have to engage in a big austerity campaign that's going to make the Ukraine economically profitable again. Every time that austerity process has been imposed on a country, it has resulted in national bankruptcy. It does not do what it's supposed to do. What it does is funnel wealth back to the imperial center. In this case, the United States with chunks for its inner circle of European allies. So you've got to get past the double talk before you can even start figuring out what's going on with the economic situation. Right now, the United States produces almost nothing in economic terms. It produces some raw materials, okay? We produce a fair amount of oil and natural gas. We produce a fair amount of agricultural products. We don't have an industrial plant anymore, hardly to speak of. Most of the goods that we use in America today are imported. So it's important not to get too stuck on the economics because the economics are subsidiary to the political and military realities that mean that we can send out IOUs, we call them treasury bills, which are never going to be paid off. And other people send us actual concrete real wealth, like oil and computers and cars and things like this. So... In terms of the vacuum, the vacuum, if you will, the giant sucking sound is the sound of U.S. empire sucking wealth from the rest of the world. When that breaks down, that flow is going to stop. And that means that people here in the United States are going to have to get used to getting by on a lot less wealth than they're used to. Ballpark, assuming that we end up with about our fair share per population, about an 80% pay cut for all of us. While the rest of the world suffers, depends on where you are, of course, because there will be a new imperial power. Probably at this point, it's looking like China, but we'll see. And they'll end up getting the disproportionate share of the world's wealth, and other countries will go up and down depending on how they work things out with the new imperial power. So it is really a complicated process. But the, the thing that I would stress here is that the economics actually is secondary. Political and military realities trump economic realities. Who has the power? Who can tell you you're going to take T-bills and just stick them in your central bank because we tell you to? You mentioned before that recognizing that we are in an empire is something that the United States has really yet to do in a lot of ways. Other empires in the past have freely associated themselves with empires, saying we're the Holy, we're the Holy Roman Empire. We are the British Empire, the empire in which the sun never sets. Irishmen used to insist that was because God himself would not trust an Englishman in the dark. <laughs> <laughs> why, why are Americans so reticent to declare their empire and their domination of the world? Well, partly I think it's because we've got this ideology of being the underdog that we inherited from back when we were rebels against the world's big empire in 1776. Back in the Cold War. The Russians used the term imperialist as their favorite weapon for beating up on everyone else, on, on their national enemies. We were the imperialist running dog lackeys, blah, blah, blah. And so you didn't talk about empire because it kind of played into Russian propaganda. But I'm not really sure why it is. You'd think the neoconservatives of all people who practically put on jackboots and strutted around, you know, funky uniforms, the neoconservatives should have just gone right out there and said, yes, we're an empire. Why don't we wallow in it? A few of them did. Neil Ferguson is a great example. He's done several books where he's talked about how wonderful empires are and how you have an empire and the world is relatively at peace, which isn't true. 
The imperial nation and its immediate circle of allies are in peace, but you've got the British Empire, the British Army and Navy were constantly pounding the crap out of other countries all over the world. But it certainly looks good if you're in London. But most of the neoconservatives have just been as mealy-mouthed as everyone else. They, they need to get out there, you know, put on the togas or, or what have you, and, and be forthright about it. I think it's past time. Do you think that empire is an inevitability of all civilizations? I feel like we always seem to have an empire that's either coming up or falling down. Is empire an inevitability? That's a hard question to answer. Certainly, however, that as far back as we know, at any situation where there's been more than one nation in contact with each other and one of the nations has been able to exercise significant military influence over the other by, like, invading or threatening to invade, there have been unbalanced exchanges of the kind that um, we typify as an imperial wealth pump. So, broadly speaking, for all practical purposes, for our lifetimes and probably the lifetimes of our great-grandchildren's great-grandchildren, there's going to be an empire or we're going to be in a period between empires when different nations are trying to aspire to the position of the next big cheese. So it's one of those things. All that one can do if one lives in such a world, if one's nation happens to be an empire, you can try to back out of that role. You try to talk people to backing out of that role as gracefully as possible, as Britain did, of course, in the 20th century. If one is not an imperial nation, one can always look at trying to maintain a certain sensible distance from empire the way the United States did until about 1900. But that nations are going to invade other nations, that nations are going to exercise undue influence, that they're going to exploit other nations. Unfortunately, for the time being, until human beings change into something different from what they are, that's probably going to happen. So, John, what makes America's empire particularly unique from a long-time perspective? If we look back, say, at the end of the 21st century and say, the American empire was this, and that made it different from the British and the Roman empire, what would you say to that? Well, and actually, it doesn't have a lot of differences from specifically the British Empire, which it immediately succeeded. In a lot of ways, what we did was muscle in on Britain in the course of the Second World War, take its empire from it and run it for our own purposes. The major difference, again, is that we're mealy-mouthed about it. We pretend it's not an empire. And we don't tend to do the sort of direct imperial rule of appointing viceroys and sending troops. I mean, we do send troops, we send them quietly, we have them in little bases here and there, rather than, say, stomping down the streets of the capital. That's happened before. There have been other empires that have operated along those same lines. Athens had an empire in ancient Greek times that was run on roughly the same basis. But the one other thing I'd point to is that we had the additional factor of living in a civilization being in part of a period of history where human beings had access to fossil fuels. That gave America's empire a great deal more basically free energy to throw around. And it allowed us to get to a level of extravagance and a level of relative comfort and affluence that you didn't generally get in the past. There just wasn't as much wealth. I mean, the fact of the matter is that the average middle-class American these days has privileges and comforts that emperors couldn't get 500 years ago. Talk to me about the rise of the American empire and particularly like the narrative that we teach ourselves and tell ourselves about the first and second world wars. Can you dispel any of those stories? Since Americans believe they don't have an empire, we couldn't have like gotten an empire. We didn't rise to an empire. We certainly didn't mug Britain in 1941 
and let them know in no uncertain terms that the price of saving their buns from Nazi takeover was that they were going to give us their empire and accept a subordinate role from then on. But that's what happened. You know, the United States had up until that time mostly concentrated on, first of all, all through the 19th century, expanding across the continent, engaging in its own annihilation of the remaining Native American peoples and its own struggles over what kind of economy it was going to have. We call that the Civil War and generally settling its own internal affairs until it extended from sea to shining sea, as the song goes. At that point, it became very clear that there were two choices left. Either the United States was going to have to accept a less expansive notion of national entitlement, or it was going to get into the empire business on an international level. It was going to start getting colonies overseas. And there was a huge debate over that, which you don't hear about in the in the school textbooks these days, but there it was. It's hard to think of anything that Andrew Carnegie and Mark Twain both agreed on, but both of them were very hardcore foes of the idea that America would get involved in the empire business, but in fact, we did. We took on the Spanish, we seized the Philippines, we seized Cuba, we seized Puerto Rico, several other places. Come the First World War, there was actually quite a bit of debate as to which side we were going to be on, if any. There was actually probably the majority of American Sentiment was on the side of staying out, let the Europeans fight among themselves, and it took a lot of work on the part of President Wilson to bring us into the First World War on Britain's side. And we basically bailed out the Allied powers in that. There is every reason to think that if the United States had not first sent huge amounts of money and arms and uh, raw material to Britain and France that the Germans simply would have won the First World War. At the end of that, there were enough people in America that were not in favor of this. There was, of course, the whole isolationism thing, drawing back from European involvements. Wilson's attempt to get the United States involved in the League of Nations was shot down in Congress. And we settled down to the fine art of imposing our empire over Latin America. This is when the phrase banana republic became common all through the between the war periods. Again, this is not something you get in the history books. We were sponsoring one coup d'etat revolution after another, sending the Marines, basically maximizing our control over Latin America and stripping it to the bare walls. But again, that's not part of the narrative. Then we get the Second World War. The Germans decide it's time for round two and they've actually paid attention to the lessons of gasoline warfare where the British and the French did not, and all of a sudden Britain is on the ropes and France has German troops marching down the Champs-Élysées in Paris. And the the U.S. government at that point, Franklin Roosevelt, who was was an Anglophile and and wanted to bring America in on England's side, where a significant number of Americans thought we should go in on Germany's side, and an even larger number wanted us to stay out. Long, complicated story that ended at Pearl Harbor, and the United States went to war. And then, of course, well... The narrative has that we charged over there and saved the day and crushed the evil Nazis and then found ourselves locked in the Cold War with the Russians, which, broadly speaking, is more or less what happened. Another way to put it is that we held Britain for ransom. We said, we'll save you if you give us your empire and accept a permanently subordinate role. And then faced with us or the Nazis, they chose us, which I suppose made sense. And then it was a matter of who gets Europe. And who gets Europe was a question the Russians wanted it and we wanted it. And so the line ended up drawing most of the way down the middle. And that's really been the question ever since. When the Soviet Union collapsed, we proceeded to push out what our holdings briefly all the way into Russia until the oligarchs, our patsies, 
<coughs> got overthrown by Putin, and uh, we have the situation where we have now, where a nice little proxy war is shaping up in the Ukraine. Business as usual. Of course, that's not the narrative. You know, the narrative is that we're the global policemen, we're a global force for good. When we manufacture a revolution and a coup d'etat in the Ukraine, that's just the longings of the Ukrainian people for liberty. And when the Russians do exactly the same thing, it's callous Russian interference in Ukrainian affairs. Uh, did I mention double talk? I think I mentioned double talk. Yeah. Empires attract double talk the way a dead rat attracts flies. And so we're spewing out double talk about what's going on in the Ukraine. The Russians are spewing out double talk about what's going on in the Ukraine. It would be nice to say that one or another power is to be agents of sweetness and light and democracy and goodness and <clears throat> what have you. But everybody is playing this game for wealth and power. One of the things that you looked at in your book is going back to all the empires that have risen and fallen in the past and kind of tracing out some of these cycles that they go through and their disintegration of democracy. Could you kind of talk about those cycles and how they could potentially play out and have played out in the United States? Well, there are two things going on here. First of all, there's the rise and fall of empires. And second of all, there's the way that happens in societies that have, to some extent, a democratic tradition. Not all empires do. I mean, ancient Egypt went through uh, like three different imperial cycles without ever having the idea of democracy. It was, you know, the pharaoh one way or the other. But the rise and fall of empires is a simple function of the fact that, A, the wealth pump eventually is going to drain your subject countries dry, at which point you no longer have the surplus wealth to pay for whatever the military technology du jour happens to be. And then you go broke, and then your empire falls. It really is quite simple. Uh, the process that takes democracies and cycles them through tyranny and oligarchy, that's a little more complex. That was worked out by a Greek philosopher named Polybius, who was around in the time of the Roman Republic, suggesting that much of, much of what's going on now has very old roots, as indeed it does. Basically, you start the cycle, what, what he called anacyclosis, which means literally going around in a circle. You start the cycle of anacyclosis with a society in chaos. And out of that chaos arises a tyrant. That was Polybius's term, we, a dictator, a one guy who is able to get enough control and who gets enough support from people who are desperate for an end to the chaos that he is able to impose his way of doing things on the fractious, chaotic situation. Okay, so we have our tyrant. Usually about the time he dies... They don't just appoint another tyrant. There are various people who have risen to secondary positions of power, and they establish what Polybius called an oligarchy and what, what not that long ago in Latin America was called a junta, you know, a group of more or less allied ruling figures who keep the control of government in their hands. It's the sort of thing that goes on nowadays, for example, in China, where you have a collection of very powerful figures at the top of the Chinese Communist Party. That's an oligarchy. Oligarchy continues for a while until it starts fossilizing, it starts getting into trouble, and you start getting people who are trying to tear chunks of power out of its hands. They always do it by calling for liberty and democracy and getting power in the hands of the people, because that's a good way to, to push the political boundaries. And so you end up moving into what Polybius called democracy. Now, that is not necessarily a compliment in his mouth. Democracy in ancient Greek means the rule of the mob. But you have a popular government. You have a government that is more or less ruled by the people or by some majority of them. Now, in our preferred narrative, then they lived happily ever after. But of course, in the real world, what happens with a democracy, the power becomes more and more diffused. It becomes more and more easy for people to build up veto groups 
which allow them to stop other people from getting things. It becomes easier and easier for people to engage in profiteering and kleptocracy, where eventually the society is unable to make any decision at all, except that various groups are able to milk it for all it's worth. This is, sounds like today's America. You're catching on. And then th that process pushed far enough results in a society in chaos, out of which we get but another tyrant. And around and around it goes. Now, one of the things that differentiates the United States from many other societies is that our Constitution is flexible enough that we have actually been through this process several different times already under the same Constitution, under the same official system of government. We have, in fact, already had three more or less tyrants. Their names are George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, and Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Both of them single figures who dominated the American political scene, swept aside the old order with very limited concern for the legalities, and brought an end to a period of gridlock and chaos. After them came an oligarchy, basically, the Federalist period of the early American Republic, the Republican ascendancy of the Gilded Age of late 19th century America, and the military-industrial complex of which Eisenhower spoke in the post-Roosevelt era. That gradually breaks down as various people, again, pull chunks off of it, like wolves running down a mastodon or something, and you end up with society falling into partisan stress, falling into gridlock, the government becoming unable to deal with its crises at all. The first time around, it was a couple of decades before 1860. The second time around, it was a couple of decades before 1933. And here and now, well, we're in the middle of that right now. We'll see when that one comes to an end. But so you have that same cycle under the same Constitution. It speaks very well for the Constitution that it's that flexible. And it's arguably a good thing because although there have been abuses, there are always abuses. No democracy is perfect. No constitutional government is perfect. America has had a lot fewer mass murders, rounding up of political prisoners. It's had them, no question. But it hasn't had as many as happens when constitutions are chucked out the window and we have mass executions and things like that. So there's something to be said for the constitutional flexibility. Now, one of the main narratives that you always hear, whether it's on cable news television or people talking about what's going on in Washington, D.C., it's that there's gridlock and nothing can get done. And whether it's the executive branch or the legislative branch, there's just nothing happening. And it takes me back to stories that I would read about the failure of the Roman Empire. And basically, nothing was going on in the Senate. And it actually got so terrible that the empire wasn't able to manage its crises and their lawmaking structure wasn't able to work and their government was in stagnation, that the arguments became so heated that the senators actually brought knives in to start settling debates. And the process that you were just talking to about where the confusion becomes so great and overwhelming that you basically have to get one person who takes charge, and the Caesar did that, I could possibly see that playing out in the United States in the future. What do you think? It's happened already. In the 1850s, during the sectional struggles that led to the Civil War, there were situations where fistfights broke out in the House of Representatives and people beat the crap out of each other right there on the floor of Congress. Eventually, what happened was the Revolution of 1860, basically, the taking of power by a minority party and Abraham Lincoln and the Civil War. So, yes, could it happen again? Of course it can happen again. I don't see our current Congress rolling up their sleeves and going at each other with fists. They're less reminiscent of the 
Senate of the late Republic, which was bringing knives to Senate meetings, and more to the Senate of the late Roman Empire, where they were basically a polite debating society, rather well removed from the actual mechanisms of power. In the 4th century AD, the Senate wasn't doing anything. And so nobody worried about bringing knives. You just went there and debated learnedly and passed legislation that the emperor was perfectly free to ignore. But could we see a situation where the current state of gridlock breaks down with another dominant figure, another tyrant? Of course. In fact, it's probably the most likely outcome. What's the likelihood of us moving into another constitutional crisis, a new constitutional Congress forming and, and saying, let's get rid of this and revamp what we have? I hope not, because the Constitution that we've got, precisely because it's old-fashioned and because it has these little things like checks and balances, it makes things a little easier to maintain some level of accountability, some level of civil society and of basic human rights, however often those may be ignored in practice. They're not ignored as thoroughly as they are in societies where that kind of thing goes away. I'm very worried that if we had a constitutional convention at this point, they would simply sweep all that away. We'd be left with a much more efficient tyranny. Now, one of the key ideas that you explore in your book is this concept of geopolitics and how this kind of arose in the thinking inside Washington, D.C. And I recall hearing Bill Clinton actually speak in Washington, D.C. one time when I was there and the kinds of concepts that he was using and playing around with. It's very clear with the kind of understanding that you are developing in your book that these people inside the Beltway have no idea. They still think that the American empire and its power operates as it did right after the Second World War. And so will there be kind of a wake up call that this idea of geopolitics may not be tenable in the future. What do you think? Well, it's a good question because the United States, since about 1990, the United States has behaved in the most purblind, brain-dead, idiotic fashion. The absolute requirement of American geopolitics in the post-Soviet era was to drive a wedge between the Russians and the Chinese. Okay? Classical geopolitics hold that you've got to keep Eurasia divided because if Eurasia is united, it rules the world. So you've got to drive a wedge between the two big Eurasian powers. What have we done? We have gone out of our way to drive Russia and China into each other's arms, even though they have major interests in conflict. We have made it impossible for them to do anything but ally. We have built their strength. We have encouraged them to ally against us. We didn't have to do any of this. When the Soviet Union went down, if the United States had immediately launched a second Marshall Plan, had set itself the goal of establishing a Russo-American alliance as the cornerstone of, of a new world political order and cultivated Russia as a bulwark against the rise of China, the United States empire might have lasted another one or two hundred years. As it is, we've created our own nemesis because the Russians have the gas and the oil. The Chinese have, at this point, many of the raw materials. They've got the ocean access, which Russia doesn't really have thus the fighting over the Crimea a little while ago. Russia has the advanced technology, which China is learning and picking up on. We've gone out of our way to do exactly what was least in our national best interest because we assume that it doesn't matter, because we assume that we can just go ahead and treat Russia like a conquered province. We run things. We're number one. It's idiotic. It's stunning short-sightedness. Now, the thing is, this is actually very common. Empires in their last years are routinely afflicted with absolutely stunning cluelessness. 
the British Empire engaging in a deliberate policy of trying to counter Germany instead of allying with Germany. If Britain, starting in about 1860, as Germany began to coalesce, had built on its long-standing historical connections to the Germans, encouraged Germany to develop a colonial presence, basically worked on an Anglo-German alliance as the foundation of a future global geopolitics, the First and Second World War would never have happened. Very likely what would have happened was that Germany would have gradually become the more dominant of the two powers, but it would have been in good shape. Instead, you know, Britannia rules the waves and we simply don't care. And they didn't, and it cost them horribly. We're doing exactly the same. We are being just as clueless, if not more so. And it is one of these days, it's possibly not that far in the future, it's going to cost us terribly. When things become so desperate, human societies retreat into forms of magical thinking. At the end of the Indian Wars and the latter part of the 19th century, you saw the rise of the ghost dance, which swept through the remnants of native communities. These communities believed that the great spirit, the warriors, would come back, the buffalo herds would come back, they would get their lands back, the white colonizer would disappear. That is replicated as anthropologists have studied throughout societies that collapse. We live in the greatest country in the world. The greatest nation in history of mankind. The strongest, freest, greatest country. The greatest health care. The greatest universities. The greatest schools. The greatest rise of freedom and opportunity. Greater than Solomon's Israel. The single greatest nation in the history of all mankind. The greatest country ever. When you are unable in any real way to affect the environment of the world around you, then you wrap yourself in these cocoons of fantasy. American influence is always stronger when we lead by example, we can't exempt ourselves from the rules that apply to everybody else. I believe in American exceptionalism with every fiber of my being. America does not simply stand for stability or the absence of conflict, no matter what the cost. We stand for the more lasting peace that can only come through opportunity and freedom for people everywhere. Our major source of international power is not economic, it's military. And we're a lot like actually the former Soviet Union. The Soviet Union didn't collapse because it lacked military strength, it collapsed because it lacked economic strength. The same thing's happening to the United States. So it's all about military bases and expanding U.S. military around the globe? It's all about maintaining the uh, primacy of uh, the U.S. national security uh, establishment, yeah. At the expense of the U.S. economy? Yes. Uh, Secretary Kerry threatened to isolate Russia economically and politically. He threatened asset freezes and visa bans. Take a listen to this. You just don't invade another country on phony pretext uh, in order to assert your interests. It's really 19th century behavior in the 21st century, and there is no way to start with. And that is symptomatic. And the United States would be a good example of an empire in serious 
decay and decline. These are qualities that are symptomatic of a society that no longer has the intellectual and moral health to face hard facts and readjust and carry out forms of self-criticism and self-correction. You're listening to episode 81 of The Extra Environmentalist. Today, we're talking with John Michael Greer about his new book, Decline and Fall. One of the fascinating things about the American empire and its failures that we have mass media now. And so we see how it has kind of created a collective narrative about the United States and its role in the world. And this is a very interesting dynamic to explore because this didn't exist in Roman times. So do you think there was like a moment in the fall of Rome where everyone was chanting drill, baby, drill, you know, or some equivalent where? Oh, yeah. Oh, good heavens. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't need a mass media to create mass consciousness or a mass mind. It helps. But it was absolutely de rigueur in the late Roman Empire to assume that, of course, Rome was the eternal center of the world. And the whole ideology of Roman power, which you can find in Roman religion, you can find it in Roman family politics, in Roman law, you have this idea of a chaotic world that is brought to order by a benevolent despot. And then everything goes happily ever after. And that was their monomyth. That was their fixed narrative. Everything came to that. In religion, you know, Jupiter had beaten the crap out of the Titans and imposed the rule of the Olympians, and, and it's happily ever after. In the Roman family, the paterfamilias, the father of the family, was expected to be exactly that kind of benevolent paternalistic despot. In philosophy, the Stoic philosophy, which is so popular in the Roman world, the whole idea was that the reasoning aspect of the mind was to treat the rest of the personality in exactly the same way. Clobber the parts that wouldn't behave, beat them into submission, and then everyone's happy. And when it stopped working, nobody had any way to deal with that, and so they just kept on saying it louder and louder. Even at the point when the Roman emperor, you know, the supposed ruler of the world, was a refugee hiding in the swamps of Ravenna. It was still, well, of course, the emperor runs the world. You know, if there are these temporary setbacks, well, you know, that's to be expected from time to time. But Jove will clobber the titans once again and peace will return. You know, the Dark Ages were drawing on rapidly, and this was still the stuff that was coming out of the mouths of the poets and the writers. It's exactly the same thing as Drill Baby Drill, because Drill Baby Drill is basically an attempt, an incantation to convince us that America is, of course, the richest nation in the world. We have limitless resources, therefore we can, we can run the world as we want to, as we did in 1950, when we still had ample natural resources before we, we stripped this continent to the bare walls. 
for both the left and the right in the United States, there are these stories of the man behind the curtain that runs everything, the deep state, the Tea Party's liberal elite, the 99% and the 1%. Both sides have this idea that there's this core group of people that actually control things and that, you know, no matter what happens, this core group of people sit in this room, the Illuminati, whatever, and run the show. Yeah, yeah. The, the evil, the evil space lizards or what have you. Yeah. Everybody has their space lizards. Yeah, exactly. And so could you talk a little bit about the kind of Republican Democrat dynamics and how that kind of narrative plays out and plays into thinking about the disintegration of the American empire and how you think it works? First of all, behind the paranoia, behind the focus on conspiracy thinking and scapegoat hunting, there is the reality that government in America does not work the way the kind of kindergarten version that we're all taught claims that it's supposed to work. It is not the case that the will of the people is necessarily, you know, immediately focused in Washington, D.C., and selfless public servants in Congress make laws. Of course, it's about money, and it's about power, and it's about favoritism, and about personalities, as it is in every society. But the fact that people jump to the conclusion that because they don't have any power, somebody else has to have it. And if things are going wrong, it must be someone's fault. It must be the fault of these people who have the power. What I'd like to suggest is something considerably more troubling, which is that at this point, in effect, nobody has the power. That our system is so gridlocked and so fractured, the power has become so dispersed, that individual power centers can loot the system can engage in the kind of kleptocracy we've seen the executive classes engage in and so on. But they can't actually control it because no one's controlling it, simply lumbering ahead on the basis of past policies that have become fossilized in place because nobody can get together enough of, of a power base to change them. And this is frankly much scarier than a society run by a bunch of evil space lizards, because at least the space lizards might conceivably see disaster directly ahead and turn aside. Whereas if nobody's in control, it's very much as though you're riding a bus and the bus driver who is shut away behind locked doors has fallen over dead of a heart attack and nobody is at the wheel anymore. So on the other side of that remark, then you can't have a benevolent empire then either. You can't have an empire that looks out for the good of the world or the good of its citizens. No, no, because to have an empire, you have to have control of a lot of wealth. And if you're going to have a lot of wealth, you're probably going to be taking it from your subject countries. Otherwise, you're going to have a heck of a time convincing the people of the imperial nation to support your empire. They want to get rich. That's what an empire is about. So, no, empires are always going to be parasitic. Recall what I previously said about double talk the empires are always going to insist that they're doing it for, you know, to spread democracy in the world or to bring good government to the natives, as the Victorians said, or and the Romans said, actually, or what have you. There, There's all kinds of double talk. Um, the Spanish empire was to bring the blessings of Christianity to the heathen, you understand, and so on. Everybody has double talk. Empires are always parasitic. They always strip wealth out of their subject countries and leave the subject countries basically bankrupt. That's just the way it is. But there's another aspect with the Republicans and Democrats, okay? And it's something that's very worth paying attention to here. Both of them are very heavily engaged in a good cop, bad cop routine, which allows them to maintain their current state of relative domination of the political process. Every time the election comes around, what do the Democrats say? You've got to vote for us or the scary Republicans will get into power. 
And the Republicans are going to all their captive constituencies and saying, you've got to vote for us or the scary Democrats will get into power. And they say it so loudly that people never ask, well, yeah, but what did you actually do for us? You know, we voted for Obama and we got the third and fourth terms of George W. Bush. What did voting Democrat actually do? Republicans voted for George W. Bush and they got the third and fourth terms of, of Bill Clinton. The two parties are basically pursuing the same agenda because it's the only agenda that it's, it's the agenda that was set in motion back in the days when there was still enough centralized power to do much of anything. It's the only one on which everyone can agree and that won't get any of the veto groups to throw um, rocks in it. So they're basically stuck. And they have to keep on playing the suckers for what they're worth to keep the campaign donations rolling in, to keep everyone turning out dutifully to vote, and to go through the charade. Now, even if it's not the Republicans and Democrats controlling things, one story I constantly see on blogs and on the internet is that it's the money system and it's the Federal Reserve that's causing the problem. And so whether it's Ron Paul and kind of the more libertarian right that's saying we need to end the Fed and move to a gold standard or some kind of gold economy, is the economy failing because of central banker mismanagement? Would that change things? No. I would strongly encourage anyone who believes that to go back and look at the history of the U.S. economy between 1865 and the founding of the Fed in 1913. The U.S. economy spent that whole period going through one catastrophic depression after another. Boom and bust, and the busts were profoundly disastrous. In fact, from the end of the Great Depression until deregulation set in in the 1990s, the U.S. economy was more stable than it had ever been before or since. And in fact, probably the best thing that could be done to restore stability to the U.S. economy would be to reenact the regulations that were removed in the 1990s, like the Glass-Steagall Act. The thing that drives a capitalist economy to self-destruction is profiteering on the part of the executive class. And when you keep them from doing that, when you put sensible regulation and sensible limitation in the, the face of the attempt on the part of the executive class to make million-dollar bonuses, then you can have a relatively stable economy, as we did more or less from 1950 to about 1980. So as we move from the 1% being controlled to the 0.01% being controlled, the power is shifting upward continually, getting smaller base of control. You know, now you have, what, what, 700 people who choose the political candidates that actually run in the election. As that power base continues to move upward, it, it actually goes international now because corporations have the ability to contribute to political campaigns internationally. Do we now have an international government of sorts? Do, do we now have people from around the world who have the most money being able to influence the empire and therefore having control of the empire in, in many ways? Is, is this what we're moving towards? Well, except here again, you're jumping to conclusions. The fact that they can profiteer off it and they can exercise veto power and they can engage in grand larceny and not be called to count doesn't mean that they can actually make things happen. It does mean that they have effective veto power. But it's not as though they all have the same interests. And it's not as though real power actually rests with them. The reason they look so powerful is that the rest of the system is so heavily gridlocked. What I think you'll be very likely to see in the United States when the gridlock finally breaks is a lot of bankers dangling from lampposts. Because the banking system is just a game of tokens, 
Money is just a game of tokens. It's not real wealth. It's not real power. As Mao Zedong reminded us, political power grows out of the barrel of a gun. And that's usually the thing that happens. We, we went through kind of a, a light version of that in 1933. There were actually the beginnings of serious civil insurrection in the United States. The two previous times we saw the Revolutionary War and the Civil War, I think we're likely to see serious insurgency this time, possibly a full-blown civil war in the United States. And in that kind of situation, the bankers have no control at all. Well, in the late, late 60s, early 70s, when that actually started happening, all the bomb threats, you know, the people like Martin Luther King and the folks like that who were actually actively voicing the people's opinion and voicing the change, who were, who were silenced in many ways by assassination. And people got upset and got, up, and got angry. And you saw all these people being upset and riots in the street. This is what happens when you shut off the outlets to the people, you know, through government, through the, the figureheads. Let's, let's go back to the 1920s. Let's go back to the turn of the last century, because there was the same thing going on at those times also. It is all too often forgotten that violent terrorism and insurgency activity in the United States is not that rare. The industrial cities of the United States between about 1890 and about 1910 were like Beirut in terms of bombs going off everywhere. People forget that that's not part of our narrative. But the point that I would make is that in the 1960s and the 1970s, there was still some flexibility left. There were still changes that could be made. And despite the assassinations, many of these changes were made. Despite the fact that the military-industrial complex desperately wanted the Vietnam War to continue, it ended because popular pressure against it was so savage. Despite the resistance of the chemical industries and a range of other industries, a whole range of environmental protection laws were put into place because the popular pressure for them was so great. We were not as far into gridlock yet. That's the difference between then and now. At this point, we're at the point of gridlock where probably it's going to take an explosion, like the Revolutionary War, like the Civil War, if we're really lucky, like the turmoil that surrounded the early years of the Great Depression, to kick us over into a new cycle of mass psychosis, the hitting of the reset button under the leadership of a single powerful figure. And along those lines, our listener Scott wrote in with a question for you that had to do with the focus that he's seen in a lot of work that deals with the potential consequences of energy systems contraction that talks about the economic issues that could play out. But with the tremendous debts that are due in so many ways, financially, socially, and ecologically, eventually it could lead to the nation state crumbling for the public, at least the legitimacy of it. And if that happens and the state loses its monopoly on violence, what role could violence play? And how do you think the U.S. would react in this chaotic process of this anticyclosis that you're talking about as the current form of government decays and turns into another form of government that then cycles through others. <laughs> Don't forget the bureaucracy and aftermath if you're going to use that terminology. But the same way it has in previous times. What typically happens is that Americans will dither and temporize and try to put things off and uh, pretend that it's not a problem until finally crunch time arrives and then the explosion hits. I would highly recommend you, the two of you and any of our listeners, go pick up a copy of Bruce Catton's book, Becoming Fury. It's a book about the beginning, the opening rounds up to the beginning of the fighting of the American Civil War. 
And it is a stunning chronicle of how a country that was absolutely opposed to the idea of civil war ended up cheering and charging into battle over a period of about one year. So this is actually something that happens. It's often forgotten, for example, that when the First World War came, and people, again, there had been a lot of dithering and a lot of anti-war activism and all this kind of stuff, and when war was actually declared across Europe, people cheered. People who were swearing they would never fight their brothers in other countries flocked to the recruiting post to join the army. When you get that kind of stress and tension, violence is a release. And that explains a lot of what happened in 1776. It explains a lot of what happened in 1861. We didn't have that happen in 1933, largely because Franklin Delano Roosevelt came out of the very richest classes of American society and was trying to stave off a revolution rather than trying to ride one. We'll see what happens this time around. I could very well see, as I said, a major insurgency or a civil war, something like that, where all of the desperate attempts to avoid change having finally slipped by, people across the country fling themselves into drastic, violent change because it's the only relief from the stress that's available. So we often call on you, John, to make predictions into the future about what a society might look like. And we've been talking about the empire in the United States specifically. Can you talk to us a little bit about 20, 30 years from now, how is the America empire going to look and how it would be like for a citizen going through that dissolution? Well, a lot of it depends on the fine details. If the United States holds together as a single nation, which is by no means certain that it will, that involves one kind of future. If the United States breaks apart into several different nations, that's another future. One way or another, though, it has to be remembered that often empires fall suddenly, especially in the modern world. Britain in 1939 was still, um, at least on paper, the ruler of the world. In 1945, it was a dependency of the United States occupied by American armies. The Russian Empire, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the German Empire, many of these empires collapsed very quickly, and I think ours will probably go the same way. So at some point in the future, probably well within the lifetime of most of the people who are listening to us just now, the rising spiral of crises will blow up one way or another, and there will be a period of some years where people are desperately scrambling just to stay above water, whether it's massive economic crisis, whether there's a civil war, people fighting in the streets, whether it's an insurgency with improvised bombs going off on our freeways and things like that, or what have you. A period of extreme crisis, at the end of which we are all a lot poorer than we are now. Because again, once the empire goes away, once the wealth pump shuts off, we're not going to have 25% of the world's energy, 33% of its raw materials and industrial product. We're going to be working with a small fraction of that, like maybe 20% at most. And so everyone is going to be a lot poorer. I see the United States in 20 or 30 years resembling nothing so much as a third world nation. A third world nation that, uh, what, what, what kind of politics it has? That's a complicated question that depends much more on what individuals do right now than anything else. If we work on relearning the skills of democracy and taking responsibility for our own political actions and for our own impact on the world, it's possible that we could be poor but have a better government than we have now. Honestly, in some ways it wouldn't be hard. If we continue to shove the blame off on other people and insist that our sense of entitlement trumps everything else, then it's probably going to be a third world banana republic with some kind of dictatorship military or otherwise. 
or possibly a collection of fragmentary banana republics welcoming into the Republic of Georgia or what have you, with an assortment of two big dictators or what have you. The political system that a nation has is determined very precisely by the amount of freedom people want and the amount of responsibility they're willing to take. And Americans generally are not willing to take responsibility for their own freedom, and so they're not likely to keep it. Now, we have just a few last questions for you, and and one of them comes from our listener, Daryl. And Daryl says he lives in an old textile mill town, and most of the population refuses to accept that its glory days are 40 years in the past in the United States. And so I live in I live in such a town myself. So, yes. (laughs) <laughs> and so Daryl's wondering what steps he can take to try and increase the awareness of the population. And he says he's currently reading your Green Wizardry book and doing lots of things uh, that you recommend in that book around building skills. But he has difficulty getting anyone over the age of 20 to realize that the way of life that happens in the United States, the expectations around it are not going to continue. But he doesn't want to get preachy and have people writing him off as a, a wacko, crazy person. Do you have any suggestions on kind of how to do it? Yes, he should not worry about trying to convince anybody because people are desperately trying to convince themselves that they really can have the American dream as defined in 1950s terms. They know they can't. They know it in their bones, and that's why they're so resistant to talking about it. What he needs to do, what I would recommend anybody to do in that kind of situation, is just get good at the green wizard stuff, okay? If you've got a backyard garden Make it organic and make it good. Have all kinds of practical skills. Share them with your neighbors. When you have extra zucchini, find people to give it to. Get that gift economy going. Get involved in local activities. If you might want to belong to the Grange or some similar organization like that, whatever whatever is active in your area, make yourself part of the community. And be active in it and be thriving. Be doing okay because when crunch time hits, people are going to turn to you and say, I need to turn my backyard into a garden. Could I like come over and get some lessons? And don't worry about trying to convince them of anything because, again, I think most people in America know what the score is, but they don't want to admit it because if they admit it, they have to deal with the fact they built their entire lives on a lie. And they're not going to swallow that very bitter pill until they absolutely have to. What you need to do is just do the work, contribute to the community, be known as an, an all-around good guy who's really good at gardening or whatever else it is that you're really good at. That way, people will come to you when it matters. One of the big stories around energy right now and has been over the last few years is the story of fracking and pulling oil out of the ground so fast that the U.S. is going to be energy independent. And that's what everyone says. But the U.S. actually could be energy independent by 2050 if it loses access to these oil resources. Exactly. We will be energy independent. It's just that we'll be a third world society operating on maybe 10 percent of our current energy budget. We'll be energy independent because we won't be able to afford to import anymore. This whole fracking business, how many times do we have to hear that some marvelous new technological blah, blah, blah has completely transformed the economic landscape, ushered in a new era where the stock market is going to zoom up forever, blah, blah, blah. It's the same shuck that we got during the housing bubble, that we got during the tech stock bubble, that we got during the bubble that crashed in 87, the same line eternally, and it's just as much garbage now as it was then. Fracking is a very short-term way to get modest amounts of additional oil and gas out of the ground. That's all it is. The technology is old. 
The Bakken shale was known in the 1970s. The only reason it's being produced now is the price of oil is above $100 a barrel. And when it runs dry, and it's already getting to the point where the depletion rate is starting to cut into the rate of increase, so we're not far from that, all the hand-waving about America as, as the new energy superpower is going to look as stupid as it actually is. And all the people who have put off doing the things that we all know we need to do because they've convinced themselves that fracking will take care of it, they're going to pay for it bitterly. I would strongly encourage everybody, when next time you hear somebody blathering about fracking, actually, I have a great suggestion here. Get a copy of John Kenneth Galbraith's book, The Great Crash 1929. Get that book, read it not once, but three times at least. It's very funny. It's very short. You can read it. All the same slogans that are being used by the fracking types, that were being used in the housing bubble, that were being used in the tech stock bubble, they were used in 1929. And once you recognize them, once you know the sales pitch, you'll never fall victim to it again. And you'll hear somebody, you know, whatever the next thing is, thorium mines or unicorn flatulence or whatever the next bubble turns out to be, you'll hear the same lines, roll your eyes and go on and do what you need to do anyway. And then you won't lose your shirt when the bubble pops, as it will. We were just reading that question from Daryl about life in his town. And so we were talking about all the people who live in this delusional narrative about living in the leave it to beaver world and trying to get there. But on the flip side, there's people who are aware of these energy issues and the trajectory of the American empire. And there's this idea of the whole collapse story. And a lot of people actually become collapse impatient. You know, the idea that there's going to be a massive default in a European country and the banking system will crash and the whole thing unravels. What do you think about dealing with that kind of collapse impatience? There again, a lot of it is an attempt to avoid the future we're actually facing. Because if the whole ball of wax is going to come apart sometime really, really soon, what can you do about it? And in fact, anytime people start cranking out, in my experience, certainly as a writer and, and speaker on these subjects, whenever people start trotting out the facts collapse thing, it's always followed by, well, why should I bother to do this, that, and the other? Why should I bother to build community? Why should I bother to learn these skills, the stuff I've talked about in the Green Wizardry book and so on? It's an excuse. It's just an excuse. In some cases, it's an excuse for suicide. I don't happen to know, I think our listeners are probably aware of the recent suicide of peak oil writer Michael Ruppert. I don't happen to know what was going on in his mind, what demons drove him to do that, but I know a lot of people whose plan for the future basically amounts to, well, when it all comes crashing down, I'm just going to die. And I think there are better options. We all know that local business and local resiliency is going to be the future of our economy in so many ways. How will that play out? What do you see as the future of our businesses? Depends on where you are. Depends on what you do. Depends on what kind of business we're talking about and location, location, location. Basically, if you're dependent on the survival of the economy as it presently exists, if you provide services to industry or things like that, your job is toast. Use it as long as you can make money off of it, but don't plan on it being around. The production of goods and services for yourself and for people you know is the wave of the future. Now, in most cases, that's probably not something you can do right now full-time, but you can certainly make a start at it. And then whatever services, it can range across the spectrum. One guy I know who's doing extremely well right now, the main service he provides is astrology. I know people like to make fun of that, but astrology does very well in hard times. And he's providing a service to people who want to pay for it. And 
my usual suggestion has been learn how to brew good beer. Now, if Attila the Hun rides up to your doorstep, you can offer him a cold one. He's your friend. So, broadly speaking, there's a wide range of things that can be done that will produce things that you can use yourself. Remember, if you make something for your own use, there's no middleman. <clears throat> there's nobody else who has to profit off of it. You get 100% of the benefit. So, doing things for yourself, doing things for your neighbors and the people you know, that's the way of the future because that's how non-industrial economies function, primarily. And as long as you're working in that direction, you've got somewhere to go. You've got a direction in which you can build as the global economy of abstract arbitrary monetary tokens folds out from underneath you. The idea in ecological economics and that of Herman Daly of a steady state economy, do you think that steady state kind of economy and civilization could develop or that say the United States as the empire fails could fracture towards kind of bioregional city states that use some sort of model of a steady state economy? Well, before we can do a steady state economy, we have to come down from the peak that we're on because we can't maintain a steady state because the resources, especially the energy resources that are currently going into our system are going away as we burn them up. So in the long run, I think we're going to see steady state economies as the standard human form simply because that's what there will be. But long before we can get to a steady state, we've got to get down to a point where we can actually support our consumption and our lifestyles on the Earth's annual supply of energy from the sun. And that's not that much. I expect to see a lot of people talking very loudly about how we can have a steady state, implying that everyone can just maintain their comfortable lifestyles that they have now. Lesson number one of the end of Empire Kitties, your lifestyle is going away. Deal with that. We have many businesses doing many of the services of a city-state, you know, the Google campuses. And here in, in RTP, we have the SAS campus that do many of the things that you would think of as a, a government or services. They take care of a lot of people's needs. Do we see institutions and or businesses taking over institutional governmental services as we go forward? I don't know. I don't think so. In certainly historical examples have been that that doesn't tend to happen because, again, businesses have the resources they have because of the very complex, abstract, arbitrary economy of tokens that we call a money economy. And the people who run businesses, the only skills they really have are the skills of manipulating that economy. As that economy goes away, as goods and services rather than abstract monetary tokens become the basic items of exchange, as violence becomes a much more widespread and pervasive phenomenon, and so on, businesses are very poorly prepared to keep control of that. Also, the class of people who mostly run business, what we might as well call the executive class, are almost uniquely unprepared to deal with the drastic loss of their privilege that they're going to be facing in a situation where the, the money games that currently give them their power and influence aren't being played anymore. In most civilizations, the rich usually make this play to try to hang on and uh, maintain their wealth and their power. And you get people nowadays talking about how the rich are out to produce some kind of feudal state. Feudal states are founded by tough guys with weapons. The people who are likely to found a feudal state in the future are not the rich folks in the gated compounds. It's the armed guards who are at the gate of the gated compounds who 15 minutes after social order breaks down simply have to engage in some weapon-related accidents to scoop the pot themselves. 
Now, part of the story in the United States is one of a rhetoric around democracy versus a reality that's actually quite different. What do you think is going to happen with institutions of governance as people have to take over local needs and deal with a continually broken system? Well, it depends very much on whether they're willing to learn what democracy actually means and how it works. Democracy is not just an abstraction. It's not just a feel-good sound. It's a set of skills. We used to be very good at those skills in America. Nowadays, most people don't know them. Some of them are actually skills of thinking. We are very poor at thinking in America today. We're very good at emoting, and that doesn't work well. If your mental life consists of emoting, you're probably going to live in a tyranny because tyrants are good at goosing people's emotions. Democracy requires education. It requires literacy. It requires an ability to think clearly. Another far from minor point, how many people in America can actually stand up in front of an assembly, say what they have to say, make a case for it, and then sit down and shut up and let the next person speak? Very few of them. That's another basic skill. There are also basic skills of democratic process. How do you organize? How do you run a group democratically so that everybody has their say, a decision gets made, and everyone goes home without running too late into the night? There's a toolkit. I talk about that in the latter chapters of Decline and Fall, what the toolkit of democracy is like. If we're willing to get back to work to relearn those tools and put them back into use, I think there's a lot that we can accomplish in preserving democratic forms and democratic methods for the future. If we continue to insist that all we have to do is emote and insist on our own entitlement and not learn anything and just blather, and if we insist on methods of organization like consensus, which fail, constantly and consistently, then we're not going to have democracy in the future. It's going to go to some kind of tyrannical system from which democracy in the future may or may not eventually reemerge. It sounds like we'll need to have kind of a massive re-education of those skills of basic rhetoric and logic. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's actually one, one of the projects that I'm going to be taking on in the Archery Report. I have some other things to do first, but probably in 2015, I'm going to be doing a very extensive series of posts on Education, on basically how people can educate themselves. It is embarrassing. So, and this is something I'd encourage all of our listeners to do. Go find a copy of the original Lincoln-Douglas debates from 1858. Okay? These are two guys going for a position in the House of Representatives, and they're lecturing Chicago feedlot workers, Illinois farmers, people with an eighth-grade education. Compare their speeches to the vapid, moronic pablum that passes for political speeches these days, or political debates. And you get a really good measure of just how far we've fallen as a people in terms of our ability to engage in basic thinking. So I propose to be talking about how people can learn how to think, how my readers, and hopefully our listeners, can learn how to think, can learn how to talk, can learn how to communicate to each other, and can learn how to sit down in a group of people discuss their differences of opinion, work out a common plan of action, vote on it, make a decision, and act on it. That's all that's involved. But you can't have a democracy unless people know how to do those things. And most Americans don't. So that's going to be a major theme in the future. And we'll see what we can do. Now, as a last question to you, people in North America, whatever government system they are living under in, say, 60, 70 years. They find your book, and what do you think they might have to say about it looking back on this century? And any last thoughts that you'd like to close us out with on, on this topic, the things we've been talking about today? My suspicion is they'll read the book and say, well, duh. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> well, of course. I mean, didn't everyone see this coming? <laughs> but, of course, that's not... I mean, and it may actually sink in as they read the book and look through other surviving books from the old days. But no, most people didn't see that coming. And then they will look back on their ancestors and say, what a bunch of dopes. But they'll say that John Michael Greer guy, what a visionary. No, they'll probably say, well, you know, he kind of, he kind of had a clue, more or less. I mean, I'm surprised he left out this and this and this and this and this, because those were just as obvious. But, uh, you know, when, when they read, if heaven help us, they read our pundits, our editorial writers, our politicians. Oh, heaven help us. I, I hope all of those books that are ghostwritten by politicians as part of um, trying presidential runs, you know, um, what will, it takes a village or all this kind of crap. I, 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 I'm not in favor of burning books, okay? Normally, I like books to be preserved. Books are wonderful things. If something could happen to every copy of those books, I think the future would be better off. Maybe severe energy austerity will require us to find a new fuel source, which basically can be everything that Rush Limbaugh ever wrote. Everything know. Rush Limbaugh wrote, everything... Well, and everything that politicians have their ghostwriters write. All the stuff that came Bush's out... What about George paintings? Yeah, that would make a decent energy source. But yeah. but please, can we take, like, what, what was the one that Obama wrote? The Audacity of Hope, that's the one, yeah. If we can just take all of those and use them for kindling in our rocket stoves, the future will be better off. It's one of these things that literally subtract from the total of human thinking by on every page. Yeah, the Clinton book, the Gingrich book, all those. All be, of them. Yeah. All of them. Gather them up. Good trees died for these books and it's really sad. Chris Martinson about changing beliefs in dealing with the decline of empire. If you give yourself a chance to Will it be mass society that has to wake up? Absolutely, at some point. People already know it. You know, this is the interesting part about my work. Uh, I get to go out and interact with all sorts of groups of people, and I, I've been doing this most recently with uh, large financial organizations. They get it. They either understand it, like in their gut, something's really off in the, in the larger narrative, or they understand the, the rationale now for understanding why things are completely different. But you're right. The dominant narrative is preserve the status quo and just continue with business as usual as much as possible. But obviously that's not working, right? We can see the distress signs all over the map at this point in time, whether it's rising food stamp usage in America, whether it's Greece getting into their difficulty. Just this morning... So here we are, it's April, what, 13th today. Uh, just last night, there were huge riots in Italy, and they call them anti-austerity riots, but we used to call these IMF riots when they happened in Ecuador, Brazil, and Argentina in the 80s and 90s, and the story is the same. You loan a country too much money, which is what the IMF excels at, plus the banking cartels. 
then when they get in trouble and can't pay it back, you waltz in and say, well, we'll bail you out, but we're going to need you to privatize your national assets and sell them to us, the bankers. We want your electricity. We want your utilities, telephone, railways, water. We're good, right? And then, oh, you still have to pay your stuff back. And this is what the people riot around because now they're saying, and we still need our money back. Now, this is the interesting part of the banking story. They print money out of thin air. They loan it. And then they bail the country out with more money printed out of thin air and say, now we need you to pay that back. But with your hard labor, right? So the austerity riots that happened just last night in Italy are people rioting saying, we're being squeezed. And so this is a story of the banks have always squeezed, right? This is what they excel at. But now cast ourselves over to this story where we understand that resources are getting tight, in particular, net energy. The energy we get after we explore for energy is that shrinks. There's just less of a pie. It's not expanding the same way, but the bankers are used to a certain cut and they want that same cut. And this is where we're, this is the, the world we're in right now. And so the wake up moment is going to be, I think, around this idea that we're going to have another financial crisis. And it's going to happen for a simple mathematical reason. You can't constantly exponentially expand your debts while the world is flatlining. That's where we're at. We're continually expanding the debts and they can't be paid back. So if they can't be paid back, they won't. And if they won't be paid back, the question is, where does the pain fall? This is really everything I see in Europe right now is just a, a, um, a complicated version of this question, which is who's going to eat the losses? The banks are saying, not us, right? The governments in cahoots with the banks are trying to make the taxpayers or citizens pay for the losses. But the citizens sometimes revolt, and that's the dynamic that, that's going on right now. So I'm predicting that there will be another financial crisis because there has to be one, because the claims that are now being laid on or have already been laid on the real world can't possibly be paid back. So you talked about net energy, and I think in some ways it's a very simple intuitive concept because it's a basic concept of biology that creatures and animals and and ecological life has to take in more energy than it eats up in order to actually survive. But when it comes to applying it to kind of large scale macroeconomy systems, I try to describe it to people and it seems like there's some kind of mental barrier towards really comprehending what that concept actually means for people's lives and how they live their life and their lifestyle, what it means for the consumer economy and everything. Why do you think there is that kind of mental barrier? Is it just because the idea is one that people resist against, that they push back against? Or do is it just that the understanding isn't there? Uh, what do you think? Uh, the reason is it's, it's complex. And it's easiest for us humans, myself is a prime example of this, to understand things when the correlation is, is direct and clear, right? We do A and then B happens. Uh, in complex systems, you do A and then D happens sometimes, but sometimes F. And then it jumps to Q and then C. You know, and it, it, it's, not, it's not clearly direct. And so in an economy... What gets hidden is we can subsidize things to an extraordinary degree. Energy provides the base subsidy under that, but then, then uh, uh, money can provide this sort of um, confounding factor that makes it really hard to figure stuff out. So what makes sense economically uh, doesn't make sense energetically. And so people can't see the connection. We see this happening over and over and over again. So I get this question, my version of this question is when people say, oh, but we'll just... We'll just go to alternative energy, Chris. Uh, you know, we're, we're just going to make this seamless transition from oil to, say, wind and solar. And we're not going to. And it won't happen. And the reason is, is that every time humans made an energy transition, when we went from 
from basically wind, then to coal, and then from coal to oil. Uh, we were going from a lower to a higher density energy system. Higher density. You know, coal was way better than wood, way better than wind. Oil is way better than coal. To go from oil, which is the most magnificent energy-dense substance we know about, to wind and solar again, means we're going to go down the uh, energy density curve. That's great. Uh, maybe we'll do it, but we've never done it before. It's easy to predict what's going to happen. It's going to cost us an extraordinary amount of money. We're going to have to dedicate a huge portion of our activities, by which I mean our economy, to that endeavor. And it means all the things that we used to be able to support around that, we can't do that anymore, right? So we just won't be able to have these massively complicated economies with 300,000 job classifications and all the little gadgets and things you see in Walmart we'll be able to support a fraction of that. And I don't know if people are, are really ready for that moment yet. And uh, we just need to understand what the data is telling us at this point. And that's the part that's uh, interesting. We have so much data to tell us where we are in the story. And we have to adjust to a new future. And it's not being done at the official level, but I see it all the time at the day-to-day -day level. It's happening in communities, it's happening in people returning to the land, they call it, but I think it's people reacting to the idea that uh, they want to get out in front of this story and start behaving in a way that has some comportment with reality, you know? Something that actually you could uh, hang on to and say, you know, this makes sense. So we were talking a little bit about before the hearts and minds part of the story. There's all this data that can be quantified and can be understood if you want to, but for the mo for majority of people, it's not really in their day-to-day. -day. They don't really care to look at that data. It's not interesting to them. They know right now that they have to get dinner on the table for their family, and they know that right now they need to make, this, make themselves happy by watching television or whatever it is that they do to make themselves happy. But to actually get to the hearts and minds of the people that you know, are going to be affected by this change coming down the line, it requires a different kind of approach. It requires a little softer touch, I'd say. Have you done any thought thinking about how to reach people in that kind of avenue? As recently as five years ago, I thought I was in the information sharing business, and I'm not. It turns out I'm in the belief challenging business. And that was a huge shift for me to understand and undertake because beliefs do not get changed by information. Beliefs are only shifted when there's some sort of emotional processing that happens. And we've all held beliefs that we've given up on, right? They're, they're not unchangeable, right? You know, tooth fairy, don't believe in it anymore, right? But it was a belief I held for a period of time. And when you're in the belief changing business, you have to understand the emotional progression people go through. And uh, this is really important, both to my ability to communicate effectively and to influence people, because that's what I really care about. I don't want to bum people out. I don't want them to become upset. I don't want to deliver information that they find upsetting, but I know that's part of the territory. And so whenever anybody is sharing information, be it about the environment, be it about energy or the economy, any of those things, which is going to raise in people this idea that, ah, things might be uncomfortable or they might turn out differently than I thought. I have this vision of the future, like um, my kids are going to have more opportunities than I had. That's a belief a lot of people hold, right? If that belief gets challenged, it's going to be met with resistance. Well, first, people ignore it. That's the first stage of, of the emotional progression is denial, right? So they ignore it as long as possible, but as soon as they can't, they'll come back with anger, right? That's the second stage. 
once enough information has been digested or they've heard it through enough trusted sources that they get through the anger stage, then they go into a bargaining stage. Well, if I buy a Prius, the, the atmosphere will be okay, right? Uh, you know? And once they get through the bargaining stage, they might go into a depression stage, right? And then ultimately they'll come to some form of acceptance is the next word people use. But I think surrender is the right word to use where we are in this. Surrender, not giving up, but surrender is not accepting the outcome. It's saying, this is what is. What are we going to do about it? Realistically approaching. So when I'm talking with somebody and I detect that they're in any one of those stages, right? They're in denial or someplace in particular. I know now that when I'm requesting them to join me in looking at this information, I'm actually asking them to go through a pretty tough emotional journey. And it's people's prerogative and right to say no thank you to that. And they usually do. But it's really important to understand that when we're raising this information, the deeper request is to, is to go through some potentially troubling material. And by the way, any, any belief you give up comes with that, that troubling sort of like frame, right? That, that's just something that humans do. And so that is a, a really fascinating point about how you can share information, but it's that emotional journey that people have to go through and kind of processing and understanding how to act on that information. And how are you seeing people prepare emotionally or advising people to prepare emotionally for that experience? Because it does come up against those cultural expectations of what we thought our future would look like and the ability to, you know, have a certain type of house and a certain type of car and a certain type of job. And if those expectations can't be met, it's a really difficult process for a lot of people. So how do you kind of get anyone ready to, to go through that? That's a great question. So the emotional preparation is actually something that we work on um, mostly in person. We have seminars that, that we hold where we do what we call the tour of the right brain because the emotional resilience is the key to this. So here's, here's the thing. We, we do focus through the economic lens pretty heavily in my work in, in large measure because I think it impacts people most directly and most severely. And I think it's going to be what's going to crack in most people's lives first. Uh, well before they experience some energy shortage or, or some true environmental impact that really, really hits them uh, for most people. And so we already have an example of when one major superpower, economic superpower, collapsed. It's the former Soviet Union, broke down starting in the late 80s. In the next eight years after the dissolution of the Soviet Empire, Russia recorded 54% of all deaths that occurred in those, that eight-year period were attributable to alcohol, mostly in middle-aged men, primarily because, now this is, this is Russia, right? So it's communist, so people, they, don't, they weren't kicked in the street, they had government housing, they have government food, they're not starving, they lost their jobs. They lost their emotional connection to what gave them a sense of purpose, right? I'm a pipe fitter, I'm out of work, I can't really provide for my family. For men, that's a really hard thing, that provide and protect gene just gets, gets twanged. And so they went into a process of checking out, of emotionally checking out. Alcohol's a favorite, but you could check out with video games, too much TV, too much exercise, too much whatever, right? This is a process that we see happening over and over again. Uh, it's already visited the United States, my country. In 2010, suicides overtook car accidents as the leading cause of non-natural death in this country. That just reflects that people are checking out. And this is when the economy is going through what I'm going to call a minor hiccup compared to what's coming next. The lesson is this. It wasn't the 
economic collapse that killed the people in Russia. It was their response to it. That's where emotional resilience comes in. So until you can start decoupling and dehooking. So if your story is my worth as a human is connected to my job, if you don't start unhooking that before your job goes away, it's going to be a very rough transition. So the work we're doing in emotional resilience is around this idea of how can we begin uncoupling those hooks that if we don't do it ourselves, we'll get ripped out of us and it's really going to hurt, be a very painful process. So the key was what you said was is just starting to adjust to this idea that the future is going to be different. It's taking our expectations of the future and... Um, you can still hold on to the same expectations, but just widen the viewpoint up, right? It could be way better than we thought, but it might be way worse. It's just getting rid of that idea that we know where we're going and how this is going to turn out. Taking people through that emotional process is a very important practice. But I'm thinking if we're going to reach a wider swath of the, of the world, or you know, even in this country, we're going to need to have people like uh, millions of people like you, you know, people talk or at least hundreds of people like you talking about these things, discoursing about these things, entering into the media, having in the school systems and, you know, actually making the changes that need to be happening to have these difficult, hard conversations and let go of this process and this way of thinking that has been a part of our country's culture for hundreds of years. How does that process begin? How do we start moving into the larger institutions with these ideas? How do we start integrating these concepts into daily life? And, you know, just maybe way just out of a seminar room and into, into somebody's living room. There's only one way that I know about to do this. It's not going to happen by voting in the right person. It's not going to happen by implementing a different policy. It's not going to happen because we've got a few new alternative currencies floating around. It's not going to happen because uh, we've got permaculture farms, you know, it's some critical mass. It happens if and only if the narrative changes. And here's an example of a narrative. Um, We're humans, right? So, So we had several hundred thousand years of development where everything was oral. And that was the only way we had to to communicate with each other. 5,000 years ago, cuneiform writing got advanced. And now we've got this awesome video technology, right? But ultimately, it's about the stories. We are wired for stories. And if we're holding a story that says we're consumers, it is the most important thing we can do is to grow our economy. We need more cars, people, houses, sold, fed, all of that. If that's our narrative, we'll live into that narrative. And and that's the one we're in. And that's that we're dealing with the consequences, and boy, will we. We need a new narrative. What if the narrative shifted from saying, we're not consumers, we're stewards? It's not important for us to take resources out of the ground as fast as possible today, which is what we're doing in the Bakken Formation in North Dakota. We are ripping the last retirement party oil out of the ground so fast, we don't know what to do with the gas that's associated with it. We flare it, and you can see the satellite photos of this, right? Of we're burning it. That's because our narrative is it's our job to get it out of the ground as fast as possible. But what if we were stewards and we said, wow, in seven generations, they might be a little pissed at us for having done that because we actually burned a valuable resource and did nothing with it except pollute the atmosphere. If we had a narrative that was around conservation and stewardship, that's a completely different narrative. If we said our highest calling in life is not to consume things, Our highest calling in life, if uh, the only thing I can identify that separates us humans is that we can choose to live consciously if we want, right? We can choose. And 
that to me is a worthy calling. I, I think it's really elegant to turn sand uh, through a bunch of processes into an iPhone. I think that's, that's incredible. But yeast turns sugar into alcohol in the Krebs cycle biochemically. Very elegant process too. Uh, those are equivalent processes. It doesn't separate us. What does is that we can actually step into a higher calling. And the thing that gives me the most hope is from permaculture, which is that it's not that humans need to go out and figure out how not to disrupt the ecosystem. We are ecosystem disruptors, like all life is. But we can accelerate nature. We can make it more bountiful. We can make soil accumulate at 100 times the rate that nature can. We can turn a patch of land and make it more productive for all sorts of species in a way that no other species can. These are things that are incredible. We can choose to live in a world of abundance. And this is the deepest narrative I know. We have a narrative running that the world is nasty, brutish, and short. Thomas Hobbesian sort of, it's scarce. It's fundamentally a world of scarcity. So I gotta accumulate the biggest pile of stuff I can, right? That's the narrative. But what if we said the world is actually infinitely abundant? But with that comes this idea that abundance means you always get exactly what you need but it might not be what you want, right? Sometimes the, my greatest growth in life has come from periods of intense pain, things that in my life I would not have chosen, but in retrospect, I said that was necessary. I think we've got this childish, cartoonish idea in current culture that everything has to be smiley, positive. Well, like we're, we're just taking one half of the universe and saying we only want the light, but everything's duality in this universe, right? everything. And, that, and we have to understand that uh, to, the concept of infinite abundance comes with the idea that sometimes that scarcity is what's necessary to deliver the abundance. That They come together. So it's kind of like I feel like we have to, either we evolve as a culture or we won't. And by won't, I mean we'll stick to this cartoonish idea that we can just um, consume our way to happiness by ripping through everything. And that will ultimately be our downfall. Our opportunity in this story is to live into ourselves more fully and to um, uh, experience life more fully. And, you know, when I look at my culture, and if you brought me from Mars and said, would you recreate this? I would look at childhood obesity rates and psychotropic drug use and prison populations and workplace violence. And I would say, I think there's a few things that could be... Uh, maybe fixed here, or there's some signs that this isn't optimal. And there's really some chances here, I think, to actually come up with a higher quality of life than we're currently living as a society. And that's, that has to be changed, that has to be put into the narrative. To the extent that environmental groups are out saying, this is wrong, 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 that won't never, that'll never do it. You have to say, here's the world we wanna go to. This is the place. It's a better place. And here's how we're gonna do it. And to that end, I'm really, really in full admiration of all the people out there who are setting the example. You have to set the example for where, you, where we want to go. And people will watch it, and they'll see it, and they'll follow, hopefully. So, so a lot of the counter-narrative that you were talking about, when you contrast that against the narrative we have in our society, people will attack that and say, well, we're choosing perhaps if we go with the kind of life you're talking about to be to have less money to be less wealthy perhaps but I think so, some of the emotional pain that people go through is when they realize what their notion and their philosophy of wealth was built around and that that actually wasn't wealth at all it might be money 
or financial valuations, but it's not actually wealth. And so I'm wondering kind of how your philosophy of what constitutes being a truly wealthy person, living a, a wealthy, abundant lifestyle uh, means and how that's changed uh, over the years for you. Well, this is, brings me to the, to the title of our website, Peak Prosperity, True Prosperity. Uh, all these concepts are things that, that we're really talking about and at, at, uh, at the website I, I operate. And um, this idea of prosperity is really important because wealth, first of all, we've been sold this idea that wealth is money. Money isn't wealth. Money is a marker for wealth. My money has zero value if I can't spend it on something that's real, intangible, right? Food, uh, uh, an education, something that I can, I can use that on. But real prosperity, true prosperity, comes if and only if you have other things besides money, right? Everybody who gets sick realizes health is actually really important. Uh, having secure uh, living arrangements is really important. Having a job that's really actually fulfilling authentically it, within your gift set, not something you do because you make a lot of money at it. Having deep relationships with your family, your friends, your coworkers, all of these things are elements of true prosperity. And so um, what I'm, you know, when I said it's important to model, I can tell you as somebody, I've, I've, uh, I've cut my standard of living in half. You know, once upon a time, I was vice president of a company called SEIC. I was making a lot of money. I had a house in Mystic, Connecticut, had a big one right on the waterfront, had a boat, had all of that. And I gave all that up to start a blog. Uh, awesome decision, by the way. Uh, it's worked out okay, but uh, at the time, I'm 42 and I have three young children, and it was really not uh, something that my friends or family understood all that well. And since that time, our standard of living has been cut in half and our quality of life has doubled. So it's the quality of life is what's important, right, And to me. And to really be prosperous, you need to have a high-quality life. And a lot of I, my projection on this now is that when, when I was out just chasing money, I was living a kind of life that had all the trappings of success, but it wasn't successful for me. It wasn't working for me. It wasn't really fulfilling. It wasn't using my gifts. And that's something that, that uh, I'm convinced that everybody needs to really understand and think about what are your true gifts because when we get into this, if we get into this disruptive future I'm talking about, uh, if all you know how to do is be a patent attorney, and that's it, uh, you're going to have a really, really big adjustment going forward because the kinds of skill sets that might be really useful in the future might be things like mediating, uh, bargaining, uh, selling, um, uh, uh, distilling, uh, you know, whatever the, the skill set might be. There are a lot of brand new skill sets out there. And so I think people who are, who are trying those different skill sets out, the genius thing that happens with that is you discover what you're actually good at, you know, rather than the stuff that you can make the most money at. And my belief is that when you become actually good at something, it's because you're actually impassioned by it. And when you're impassioned by it, there will always be demand for it. I don't care what the currency is in the future, right? It, whether it's dollars or euros or yens or something different, it doesn't matter. People who are really living into their passion are going to uh, have a much better chance of um, uh, being more emotionally resilient, of having what they want and wanting what they have, and uh, living a, a fuller life. But this is not new stuff. I mean, Rumi was talking about this, you know, way back when. And, and every culture has always had this search for deeper meaning in their existence. But for us, it has this little urgency piece wrapped on, which is, wow, we're coming to the edge this event horizon for our species, which says we're going to 
locust our way through the prime resources and then figure out how to, how to sort of divvy up the remaining ones. And that's going to be a really unpleasant moment, at least judging by what we see going on in the Ukraine and Greece and Spain and other places like that. What you describe sounds a little bit like a drug binge to me. You know, you have a pile of drugs and you're just going through it as fast as you can. It feels amazing, but you know that there's going to be a reckoning coming on. There's going to be something that your body's not going to, is not going to appreciate. Something's going to fail, right? Something, your, your liver's going to break or your, your brain's just going to crash. There's not going to be a way to recover from all these drugs that you're, you've been taking. But while you're on that high, you feel like you're a king. You feel like you've been, you, you're living better than kings have ever lived. So this is kind of the way that our economy is. This kind of way that we've been living for the past couple hundred years. Take us into a, into a place where that crash has happened. Now we're in recovery. What, where does society move into a recovery place? How do we take ourselves through AA? How do we decide to make that choice to say no, no to the drugs? I, I think the addiction metaphor is perfect. Uh, it, it really applies. And remember I was talking before about beliefs uh, and and. Uh, underlying beliefs are the things that are getting challenged. The number one belief in our country right now, and I think a lot of the, the world at this point, is, is not, has nothing to do with religion. Uh, it's a faith in technology. And so the addiction metaphor cuts in here because usually if you move from like, you know, if, if one drink didn't do it, so now you need two. And if two didn't do it, you'll go to four. And if that's not doing it, you'll move to coke. And if that's not doing it, now we're up to heroin or something, right? Each new stage that you move through, when you need more and more and more of that stimulus just to feel okay, is exactly what I see going on with technology. People all the time invade my in- inbox with like, oh, have you heard about scientists have got this beaker of algae turned into oil and we're saved, you know? And it's, if you dig back, you say, well, why is it essential for them to turn algae into oil? Well, because we used this awesome technology to take all the oil out of the ground. Well, why did we do that? Because we used up all this other stuff. Why'd we do that? And you find that each successive round of technology is just a cure for the prior one. It's just a bigger fix. But people have a lot of faith in it because A, technology is delivered. And I believe me, I'm a big fan of technology in a lot of ways, but the downside of that is to not understand it's a two-edged sword. Technology comes with gifts and it comes with shadows. And we don't look at the shadow side. So when you ask what's that moment, that AA moment, right? There's two ways beliefs change. One is through insight. That's my work. I'm trying to give people insight. Like say, look, here's some data. Let me add it up for you. Let me do it as gently as possible. A number of people can change through insight. I think it's about half a percent of the population. Uh, probably most of the people watching this. Um, 99.5% choose the, the path of pain. Need the heart attack before you take the diet seriously. You need the lung cancer before the smoking stops. You know, you need the something serious. You know, you back over the dog before you get your drinking fixed. Um, there has to be something like that, a painful moment, right? And so I think there is a painful moment coming for us as a species where we have to face up to the idea that, hey, that technology was really good, but it wasn't cost-free. It gave us some things, but not everything. And understanding that it has limitations. That's what I was hoping the Deepwater Horizon was going to give people that idea that that Deepwater Horizon rig, that, that thing puts the space shuttle to shame in terms of technology. It's, drilling, it's capable of drilling down 30,000 feet to places where 20,000 pounds per square inch pressure. It's amazing what it did. And A, it blew up, so that shows our technologies have limitations. And B, it, you know, if we'd gotten that pocket of oil it wanted to and pulled it all out and had the world use it, it would have been burned in 24 hours. So by the time you're chasing these little pockets with this amazing technology, 
that's when I'd hope more people would step back and go, uh-oh, you know, technology's uh, not the be-all, end-all here. We're going to have to make other arrangements, other adjustments. So I think there's some sort of a crash coming um, that, uh, you know, I hope we will navigate as, as uh, um, carefully as we can and, and uh, equitably. But I truly believe it has to be some sort of a painful moment. I, I've, I've been at this long enough to realize that the path of insight uh, is going to be resisted by most people for as long as possible. So that takes us into our, our last question. That's what are the trends that you're watching right now and how do you see them playing out over the coming years and what are you kind of, of looking for and what kind of advice would you have to people if they want to follow the trends and see how they're developing? Well, this is what I do uh, most carefully is, is just follow. I'm an information scout first and foremost. I'm just trying to figure out where we are in this story. So if we take three big steps back, it's easy to tell where we are in this story, right? We're adding 80 million new people net to the planet each and every year. Uh, we are seeing prime aquifers like Saudi Arabia's main aquifer is going to run out in the year 2016, right? Then what? Well, they'll desalinate. You know, well, then what? Well, they'll have to use more oil to run that very expensive process, so they'll have less to export. Well, then what? Eventually that runs out. Then what? Then they have no water and a whole lot of people. That's just Saudi Arabia. We see that same story playing out all over the globe. That's just not to pick on Saudi Arabia, but um, it's an example. So uh, I'm watching those macro trends and saying, wow, this is just as clear as day. But I follow the things that are happening in markets and uh, in, in the economic space most carefully because that's really where the disruption is going to finally break. You know, we have a global just-in-time economy and stuff has to be shipped from point A to point B to Z to back. You know, any computer you buy has probably got shipped 50,000 miles all sold, you know, before it finally landed there. Uh, that's the world we live in. It's a very energy-intensive world. And I'm just watching where we are in the oil story very carefully because not a quarter goes by where I don't find some surprising new information about where we really are in that story. And um, so I watch things very carefully on the economic side because I'm convinced that's, that's the key disruptor for most people. It, it, whether you're in China, whether you're in Australia, whether you're in uh, Europe, Eastern Europe, it doesn't matter, Japan in particular. Uh, these, I think everybody's going to have to face up to that moment of reckoning. And, and here's the macro story that's easy to understand. Um, since 1970, the whole OECD countries have gone on this huge borrowing binge, right? Just extraordinary. And since 1970, collectively, every country's been borrowing at twice the rate their economy's been growing, right? So if you personally said, I'm going to just, I'm just going to have my credit card double next year while my income goes up by fraction of that, eventually you have a math problem. That math problem started to get revealed in 2008. The world freaked out. Uh, would have been a great time to say, wow, maybe that borrowing so fast was a bad idea. But we didn't. You know, since that time, our sovereign debt's higher or lower? Ooh, massively higher. Um, are the two big to fail banks bigger or smaller? They're all larger. Do we have more derivatives or fewer? Oh, we have 100 trillion more in derivatives. Uh, are, is consumer debt up or down? Way up. Corporate debt, up or down? Way up. So we just doubled down on the bet, which was a failed bet. It's going to break at some point again. And when that happens, um, I think that's part of the painful moment that we're going to experience. That's where people realize that we had trouble in just that first E, the economy. But we're seeing other things where people are going to have those opportunities in the environment to recognize where we really are in this story. People in California already understand what drought feels like, the Southwest, certainly. Um, good chance El Nino's coming back this year. You know, we'll see how that plays out. So we're getting these larger perturbations there. And um, 
uh, I just track that stuff very as carefully as I can, particularly in the markets, because I'm convinced that uh, that's the prime signaling mechanism by which most people in power get their clue that something has really shifted in this story. And when they finally get the clue, that, that's when they'll, you know, the people who really pull the levers of power, and I'm not talking about congressmen, they, they have almost no power in this story. These are the major corporations and the banks and others who actually control uh, the trillions and trillions that flow from point A to B. When they finally understand that all that debt that we've laid up in this exponential fashion can't possibly be paid back, there will be a moment where they panic or, or stampede out of those positions into real stuff. And we'll know that down here at the street level, us little people, because we'll suddenly see the things will become unavailable, they'll be bought up, uh, prices will go through the roof for real tangible assets. It's called a wealth transfer. This has happened many, many times. It'll be sold to us as a wealth destruction. We'll be like, oh, so sorry for your losses in the stock market. That's terrible. Uh, it was just destroyed. Nobody could see it coming. But we've seen this actually happen uh, multiple times in the past. Like, think about Weimar Germany. 1918, 19, they start getting this hyperinflation. By 23, it's burned itself out, right? Trillions of, of percent inflation. And you read any book about that written for us, and they're like, oh, it was wealth destruction. The middle class was wiped out. True. What's not true is that wealth was destroyed. It was transferred, right? Before and after, there were the same number of houses, factories, square feet of farmland, people. All the real assets still existed in that country. Who owned them changed enormously. And that's going to happen again. When these debts get destroyed, we're going to be sold as if this was an unavoidable destruction of wealth. But if you watch carefully, you'll notice that who owns that stuff ends up being concentrated in fewer and fewer hands. We're well down that path. I'm talking about this as if it's an event that'll happen some Tuesday in the future. It's, it's undergoing, it's happening right now. We talk about it like this mysterious rise of the 1%, but it's not. It's the mysterious rise of the 0.1%. It's not mysterious. It's what happens when you print money by the trillions, and that's the direction we're going down. And so my work in what I follow is A, try to help people through insight, understand this is the process unfolding. And by the way, there's ways to not participate in that and protect yourself, become more financially resilient, physically resilient, emotionally resilient, all things that are necessary because this wealth transfer is undergoing. It'll have a square wave moment where it takes a big change and people will wake up from that and everything will be different. And my position is, while that's happening, you don't have any opportunities. Your opportunities are to position yourself before it happens or to figure out what to do after. But the middle ground is, is impossible to, to really maneuver in. I've got my seems the United States is no different than the rest of the world in, in really needing some kind of calamity to wake up and take notice that, that they're in a decline. The infrastructure that's been able to support the United States' huge military infrastructure is just crumbling. It's falling apart. 
And as John Michael Greer pointed out, this has happened over and over again throughout history. Why do you think that a lot of people need that painful moment? Why most of the population needs to have that shock in order to change? Because you don't have to look too far, as we were just saying, to see how these trends are really playing out. And that the whole kind of lifestyle that people lead is not sustainable by any means of the word. But it seems like people are going to hold on to it until it just no longer works. And as John Michael Greer was saying, you know, in the U.S. it's 5% of the world's population, but it uses 25% of the world's energy and 33% of its industrial products. And I'm sure he's basically right on those numbers because as an empire, we've had the ability to use our currency regime and our uh, military power to prop it all up. And so people in the U.S. are going to face increasingly a situation where they have access to less and less of the world's energy and less of its industrial products. And it's going to be expressed in less income for a lot of people. But why do you think everyone needs that moment of the, the painful aspect before they change? I think that people are lulled into a a habit, a habitual nature of their lives. It's like become, a groove, basically. Yeah, it becomes really natural for people to just wake up, go to work, go home, watch the football game on the TV. I mean, it's something that happens, and it's something that, why change it if it's not broken? It worked for my parents, it worked for my grandparents. Why do I need to make the change? It, it worked for everybody else. Why should I rock the boat? It's going so well. Yeah, I mean, I still see statistics where studies come out uh, that say the average American watches five hours of TV per day. Um, and, you know, it's just an unbelievable amount of time that it's goes an into incredible watching. incredible amount of time. Yeah, you're thinking like a, almost a 40-hour work week over seven days, you know, of simply TV watching for the average person. So Not to go on a tyrant here, Justin, but just think about the information that comes in from the television, the media that is dissolved into people's brains that is coming over the television, which is majorly controlled by corporations who are pumping us full of information that they want us to know. And the narrative is, is telling them basically to get out there and consume and to be good, happy buyers of the, for the economy. Yeah, I was recently reading a book from 1895 by Gustave Le The Crowd, A Study of the Popular Mind, and we'll put a link to this in the show notes. But we were just talking about television there, and in that book from 1895, uh, Le is talking about the characteristics of crowd psychology, which is impulsiveness, irritability, incapacity to reason, and the absence of critical judgment and the exaggeration of sentiments. And what Laban is talking about is that an individual immersed for some length of time in a crowd soon finds himself in a magnetic influence given out by the crowd or in a special state which resembles the state of fascination in which the hypnotized individual finds himself in the hands of the hypnotizer. And so everything from crowd related social media to crowd related television produces that state in people to this day. And when I was reading that book, it was a really fascinating description of how theater would create these ideas. And we were talking about uh, with John Michael Greer today, the kind of mass media that plays a role in creating the narrative in today's empire. But even in ancient Rome, there was these same kind of almost drill baby drill moments of resisting the decline and fighting it at any cost. But what Laban is, is saying is 
as an empire and as a society declines, the crowd acts almost as the organism that breaks it down. And so what you see is a growing number of crowds that are gathering and expanding, and then those crowds become increasingly violent as the problems don't get fixed, and then they kind of act as the decomposer as if you almost had a bunch of, uh, you know, like a compost pile, and the crowds were uh, circling that and breaking things down, and then they create the the kind of base material from which the new society forms. That is very much what we're seeing in many countries around the world where angry crowds are protesting increasingly over the failed policies that their governments had adopted, and they're breaking things down to a point where new government systems based on new ideas will develop after some time, I think, uh, of chaos. But what John Michael Greer was saying in, in the conversation today is that this intellectual vacuum is actually one of the biggest things that's left after the U.S. empire, the lack of ideas and these ideas of neoclassical economics and economic development that were the critical elements of uh, U.S. thinking that spread around the world now are being proven as emperor with no clothes. And so what really replaces them? And I think that's what we're trying to get at with the ideas that we cover on our show with people like John Michael Greer and Chris Martinson. Thank you so much to everyone who has sent in their hard-earned dollars to the Extra Environmentalist. We wanted to thank Daniel out in Texas for sending in a really generous donation. So thank you so much, Daniel. And Ken from Vancouver Island, British Columbia, who is just on the other side of the water from me in Vancouver. And Ken got in touch with me and said he was coming through Vancouver, and it was really great to meet him. And he gave a donation to the show. So thank you, Ken. Repeat donor of Nancy in Denver. Thanks so much, Nancy. It's our repeat listeners who really make this show what it is. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Absolutely. And Vincent in Pennsylvania, thank you also for your continued donation support. Michael in San Antonio also sent in a really generous donation as well. And also Jonathan in New York, thank you for your very generous donation. We really appreciate it. So all of those listeners have been tuning in to The Extra Environmentalist, maybe for a short time, maybe for a long time, and really appreciating the kinds of discussions that this medium allows us to have and, and for the work that we put into this show. And so for that, we are extremely grateful for their donations. And anyone who donates $30 or more can select on our website to receive a t-shirt and also, anyone who donates within the United States, we have a tax ID number because of our 501c3 status. And so your donations are tax deductible. So why pay taxes to an empire in decline when you can help to support the dissemination of new ideas that can hopefully take root? <laughs> That's absolutely right. And if you like this show and you wanted to listen to more episodes of The Extra Environmentalist, all these shows are under the Creative Commons license. So if you feel like you want to remix this into a rap song or you know use it in your R&B video, feel free to mix it in and, and share it with your friends. You can also find us on Facebook where the conversation continues, on Twitter, on Stitcher Radio, as well as many other online media places. The 
discussion we had with Chris Martinson today is actually all on video as well. And so we've taken a clip from that video and put it up on our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash user slash X environmental, where there's other videos like our lecture with Richard Heinberg that now has over 11,000 views over the last five months, which that's pretty incredible to think that, you know, we don't really promote these things or put any work into it. And it just organically 11,000 people tune in and watch a good portion of this lecture. And there's quite a heated debate in the comments section around how much fracking is going to change the U.S. energy picture, which is great to read those comments. But uh, one thing that anyone listening to this will want to do is to go to our website at extraenvironmentalist.com and check out the link to our international degrowth broadcast. You'll be clicking there to go to our website where you'll see from September the 2nd through the 6th, which is coming up in just a few days from the point when we release this podcast. And you can also sign up on the right-hand panel of the page for a little email mailing list where a few days before each live stream broadcast that we're going to do, we'll send out a little blast to let people know that it's going to happen. And we just found out recently that we're going to be at the November 2014 Slow Money Conference in Louisville, Kentucky, which is another series of fantastic ideas that we're extremely uh, excited to help uh, the world access. And both of those events will be free to the public with suggested donations that you would maybe just throw a few dollars to the organizations who are putting on these fantastic events. And they'll be available on the websites of the organizations. So check those out as they come around. Get your Wiener Schnitzel ready. The Extra Environmentalist is broadcasting from Germany. As all notions of commodity and scarcity uh, and this sort of thing begin, begin, I say, to break down, it seems to me the, the sanest place to try and occupy in this whole situation is that of artist-producer. I think it's, it's very important for people to... Uh, to uh, define themselves as artists and learn tools and understand just how the game is being played in this informational jungle that is being erected because you will either have a plan or you will become part of somebody else's plan and there are a million plans out there waiting to ensnare the clueless 
So more than ever, it becomes necessary to have some kind of anchor into a real modality. I think the anthropologists got it slightly wrong. When you're taken out into the bushes and given some drug by the fellow members of your tribe, this is not that you are being made a full member of the society. It's that you were a full member of the society, and now what you're being shown is uh, what's under the board, the tricks of the trade. You're being turned into not a full member of the society, but what I, what my brother has called uh, an extra environmental. You're coming from outside. And this is a kind of maturity that many people never... It not only never attain, it never enters their mind that such a state even exists. A state, not of alienation exactly, but of ironical, sophisticated insight into the mechanisms of one's own culture and the cultural uh, games that are being played. episode of the extra environmentalist will recap our coverage of the 2014 international degrowth conference from leipzig germany Tonight, we are covering the ongoing story of the California drought. As water resources become more scarce, a new series of tech startups are finding an innovative way to develop solutions within the idea of the sharing economy. We cut to our reporter live in the field, Peter Diamonstris. Peter Diamonstris reporting live from the California water shortage where Silicon Valley is just going crazy about these new social media water apps. We sat down with some local folks to see how the power of the sharing economy was helping these folks weather this water shortage. Well, I think the the really impressive thing about uh, technology innovation progress is it's leading to a whole new uh, range of startups that are addressing this challenge. So I really like using Luber. Uh, with Luber, I can press on my iPhone screen and find the nearest person with any sort of bodily moisture that's left. And when I'm feeling particularly parched, they'll come over and spit in my mouth. Spit in your mouth? Oh my goodness gracious. That's one way that they transfer some of the last vestiges of moisture over to my shriveling husk that remains. Moving on to this beautiful lady here. Tell us about your favorite app, ma'am. Well, I'm really a fan of Flare B&B because what it does is it helps me find people with emergency flares remaining and I can fire those off when I need to uh, to help direct the helicopters full of buckets of water that are being shipped from the Great Canadian North over to my completely dry one. 
Well, thank you, Peter, for your updates from the field. And I'm wondering how people using social media are updating others of the location of these precious water resources. Is there an app or a tool that they're using to do that? Well, it's funny that you asked that because many of the people out here are using social media's app favorite right now, Spitter. That's right. You heard it here first, folks. It's called Spitter. And what it is is an offshoot of Twitter, where people are sending out any kind of update about fluids that are nearby. You can find out where somebody has recently spit on the ground. It even goes as far as to find people that look like they're moisture-ridden, so you can come find them and see where they have been drinking all day. These people have been holding out on us, and we want to find their water sources right away. Well, thank you, Peter, for the update from California this evening. I know that with the ongoing food crisis imposed by the drought, I'm very excited about using the app Tuber that delivers a potato to me from any place in a city whenever I want it. I just press on the screen and the potato moves closer to me with an ongoing update of the amount of minutes until the potato arrives to my hungry home. Thank you very much, Peter. In other news, vampire bats are increasingly disappointed with the scarecrows they bite. 